<laughs> Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Happy Dog. Um, I am Julia Wong. I am marketing and <laughs> outreach coordinator at the City Club. And this is our City Club Best Books Talk. Um, so our first one of 2018. So this year, we've seen women at the forefront of a lot of social movements. Uh, the energy from last January's Women's March has continued. Harvey Weinstein, we saw, was the tip of the iceberg as men um, continue to fall from grace after being accused uh, at sexual assault and harassment. And women are banding together for support, whether through the Me Too movement, Time's Up, or through a local movement of their own. Uh, the prominence of these women's movements, the wave of sexual assault accusations, and the coming of Valentine's Day <laughs> inspired us to discuss books about love, romance, and the, the dynamics and costs of power, even in the most loving of relationships. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, with us in discussion, we have Karen Long, the manager of the Annisfield Wolf Book Awards. We have Valentino Zullo, the teaching fellow at Kent State University, Ohio Center for the Book Scholarship, Scholar in Residence at the Cleveland Public Library, and Maternal Depression Therapist at Ohio Guidestone. And we have Cal Zunt, uh, who is on the Notable Books Council of the American Library Association. Uh, so we're going to start off with a discussion with our panelists, and then around 8 p.m., we're going to transition into our traditional Q&A uh, portion as we do at the City Club. So start thinking of any questions you might have for our speaker, and we'll have a mic right here that you can line up and ask questions for all of us. So to start things off, um, we are going to talk about how these themes have seen a resurgence in popular media. So. Um, Last April, Netflix created a TV series based off of a book originally published in 1985, The Handmaid's Tale. So panelists, could you offer maybe a quick preview of the story for our audience um, and talk about why this story resonates today or maybe why it's always resonated? Go ahead. Well, it, um, one of the reasons The Handmaid's Tale uh, um, resonated with people is it was such a fantastical tale um, and it's really uh, fantasy fiction uh, about a future world in which um, childbearing has um, been affected by uh, nuclear war and the civilization that builds out of that is one in which uh, handmaids are the women who are of a lower caste, essentially, who bear the children, um, but once literally they have uh, born the children, they are shuttled away to the higher caste, uh, and uh, the dysfunction continues in this rather authoritative um, horrifying dystopia, uh, but there's always an undercurrent of women's power uh, that uh, tries to come through the cracks in the concrete, if it, you will. <laughs> and Elizabeth Moss, of course, did the, uh, is it Netflix? Netflix. <laughs> Netflix series, and Margaret Atwood has a, had a resurgence um, in this political moment. I heard her last March in New York, and she made some jokes about sneaking across the border from Canada. And then she said she was watching us in the States closely, and 
that she believes and has written in her fiction that when authoritarians take over, three things happen. She said um, there's a, a strangulation of the press, there is a throttle on the judiciary, and she said, and the military starts taking over positions. So those were her three things to watch, which I've been thinking about in the last year. And um, so, can, am I close enough? Okay, there we go. So um, one of my, the reason why I'm interested in Handmaid's Tale, and I'll contrast it with another Netflix, uh, a, a Netflix show. So Hulu, I think, is Handmaid's Tale, right? And so I'll oh. contrast it with a Netflix show, um, The Black Mirror. So I find watching The Handmaid's Tale um, a sense of, it might be too far to say inspiration, but a sense of activity. Like when I watch it, I, I identify with the main character, Elizabeth Moss, and hope for, and I'm hopeful. When I watch something like Black Mirror, which is also a dystopian narrative, I'm always walk away like just so sad. <laughs> and so I do. And so, but when I watch Elizabeth Moss, when I watch The Handmaid's Tale, despite all the horrors, there's a sense that we can make change, which I don't get from like Black Mirror. And then, so I think that The Handmaid's Tale, despite, like I said, all of the horrors, is wonderful because there is a sense of inspiration when you identify with this figure that is so active that despite everything pushes through and says to you, you know, we can even stop this throttle on the press, on the judiciary, and the, and, and the advancement of the military, that we, can, we too can be like Elizabeth Moss. And so I think in contrast to these other dystopian narratives, Handmaid's Tale does offer us opportunity. And that's so why I think I am like it. So, oh. Julie, I just wanted to quickly mention, um, you can see where we're going a bit with this arc of conversation, which is the topic of women in power um, is not just about women in power. It also seems to be a rather timely, universal topic on um, what elements control the means of power in a society, and what, where does the individual fall? So to kind of move along and talking about change, um, Valentino, I want to invite you to share the comic world story. So Valentino is our comic expert. And uh, if you could talk about what role women have had in, the com in comic creation, um, in comic book stories, and what their role is today. Okay. So I'm going to do this in like under a minute. So you're going to get a very general <laughs> Greyhound bus tour version of comics history. But the one correction I want to make is that in comics, we so often associate comic or identify comics as a as a boys club, and that narrative is 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 not is not true. I mean, early comics creators, in fact, there were many women that were in comics early on. Um, in particular, you can see Wonder Woman behind us, and she's. Um, important, especially because the Wonder Woman movie last year. But even Wonder Woman comics, early on, um, there's an issue of Wonder Woman, it's at Wonder Woman issue 16, if you want to look it up, um, where Wonder Woman is dealing with sexual assault on college campuses. And Joy Murchison is the, is the writer of it. She's ghostwriting for um, William Moulton Marston. There's an issue of Wonder Woman, it's issue 7 of the original series, where Wonder Woman runs for president and she has to beat Mr. Manley, who actually rigs an election. <laughs> this is all real. <laughs> what and year? Um, 19, um, that one's 1943. And 1946 is the Wonder Woman where she is dealing with um, sexual assault on campus. And so by 1950s, like, like American culture, there was this erasure of women. but. Um, 
that wasn't true of early comics. There were a number of women that were writing. There were a number of people that were part of comics that we don't see now. And it definitely became a white boys club. But as an alternative to that, again, we're getting to this world where now we're seeing women back in comics again. I brought some monstrous Marjorie Liu is a wonderful writer. Um, the Jessica Jones series is written by Brian Michael Bendis, but the TV show, as we'll show you in a little bit, is by director Melissa Rosenberg, Chelsea Kane, G. Willow Wilson, Amanda Connor. There are all these women that have entered comics, and it's changing. But it's not, it's not even a change. It's a return to the origins of comics, where women did have a major presence. And that's one of the things like that we see with women's narratives. We don't want to lose this change and all of a sudden rewrite the story uh, of telling these stories again and again. They're not new, they're, they're old. We just kind of forget. We, we have a sense of forgetting all these old stories. That's a very, very general introduction. Um, did, sorry, I'm working a couple jobs right now. Yeah, no, <laughs> um, no. Did you want to play and show the audience Jessica Jones now? Yeah, sure. Do you want to, do you want to hit play? Uh, yeah, so, so we're, this is a, we're gonna I'll hit give it. you just a brief <laughs> intro. So um, the Jessica Thank Jones comic is wonderful that this is the TV show and I want to talk just briefly about something related to Me Too after you watch the trailer. Theater. I'm resourceful. <laughs> so I'll briefly just address the, what I, when we talked about this, I said, oh, we have to talk about Jessica Jones because Me Too is obviously about violence against women and the viol and violence that, that becomes a cycle. And so the, the villain in this trailer said it very quickly, but there's a, there's a point where the two of them are talking and Jessica Jones says, I could kill you right now. She's a superhero. And so <laughs> you have to go with that. So she's, she, and he says, but you won't because you don't know what will happen when I die. And she, he, they, in, that very, in that moment, they capture the cycle of violence, particularly of domestic violence, of that I don't know, of not knowing what the world looks like outside of that cycle of violence. And the whole show is about not only um, being part of that cycle of violence, but again, like The Handmaid's Tale, finding an alternate route out, being, finding hope, even in all of this sadness, in all of this violence, but finding a way out. And she does learn in the story to take him, to take him out of her mind and get rid of him externally. So the show is a journey of her ridding herself of him internally so that she can rid herself of him externally. And it's, again, like The Handmaid's Tale, despite all the violence, captures this, this um, ability to make change, and I think it's a be it's a beautiful narrative because it's also just really fun to watch because <laughs> she's drink she drinks all the time and she swears and she right. beats people up, but it's also like fun to identify with her and think, mm -hmm. okay, how can I to make change? So it seems like in Jessica Jones that a lot of her power comes from um, a history of sexual violence, um, and I think we've can identify that in other comic in other female comics, um, or other females in comics. Um, is that still true? Why, is, why does it appear that way, and is it still true? So, um, yes and no. So comics have historically been bad to women. We know this. Um, for anybody that knows comics knows, I mean, the over-sexualization, the violence against women. I would say, though, that it definitely has changed with the introduction of women into comics more, the reintroduction, I should say, um, new voices have come in, changes have been made. They've definitely, um, editors, writers, artists have definitely asked for that change in comics. So that has changed. Okay. So to open up this conversation, um, how do, or what are women being portrayed like in literature today? Do we see um, the same 
kind of being fueled by sexual violence and their power? Is their power coming from a different source? So one of the sensations of 2017 was this little book here called um, The Power by Naomi Alderman. And you could not buy it at Christmas. Um, it was sold out all around the country. And when I picked it up, it has that feel of YA, just even the physical book, and the first 30 pages had young me. Which is young adult, um, yes. which is the crossover genre to a lot of films lately, such yes. as Hunger Games, etc. So there's a little dread in me, um, but I am <laughs> thrilled to report it is a kick-ass book and very related to the screen. And the premise of it that Naomi Alders, Alder Alderman used under the tutelage of Margaret Atwood, who supported her throughout this writing, as did Ursula Le Guin, is that girls start waking up one day in the near future with an electrostatic ability to shock. And at first, it's exhilarating, because what it does is it levels the playing field and at puberty, girls and then women are starting to be able to walk around the world with impunity. Mm. There are four central characters, a politician in the States, a, the daughter of a crime lord in London, a journalist from Nigeria who's the only male and a good person, relatively, and um, <laughs> the third one is, the, is a damaged, sexually um, assaulted girl in foster care from Florida who becomes the prophet of a new church. And what's so intriguing about what Naomi does with this is power corrupts. And what's a kick in the beginning starts to turn. And she has this really interesting um, global differentiation. So where women have been Suffering in Delhi, there's a more blatant response of women just raging with their power and going through the streets. And in the West, it's a little more subdued and a little more framed as a crisis, but all this anger is building up and things are, the script is tar starting to flip as men no longer have the physical power. And each time you think you know where it's going, it shifts. And Ron Charles, whom I really respect at the Washington Post, called it the handmaid's tale for this generation. And by the time I was finished, yeah. I guess one of the things that I found really interesting in the power is there's not um, a single really likable character in the whole thing. <laughs> the women are, you know, it was in light of the topic, and, and I should mention not only uh, once this power um, manifests in these young women and then they're able to communicate how to do it to older women, um, it's not just kind of a simple, like, you know, to shock your friend, go, ooh, you know, you get a little <laughs> prick. These girls go on a murderous killing spree all over the world. Um, in particular, uh, the young women in Saudi Arabia go bananas and say, don't tell me I'm not going to drive. They're, you know, causing all sorts of fun. Um, but that 
issue of there wasn't kind of a saintly, oh, let's use this power for good narrative, which we tend to see, you know, even mm -hmm. with the Hunger Games or whatever, you know, I will survive, I'm the good character. Um, there, Tunde, who is a uh, Nigerian, uh, decides to be a journalist and go around the world and follow follow these arcs of, uh, of disruption. Um, but what, in, what also happens in this conversation, because men and women interact throughout the book, is um, they're trying to figure out, well, not only do women, for a good amount of the book, take over the predominantly aggressive male role, but toward the end of the book, um, there's, also there's also this kind of undertone of, well, this isn't working quite, but this right. is what we've got. Right. And um, so the most likable character, who's really the kick-ass character, is the young woman, Roxy, who's the daughter of a crime lord in, um, in England. And she's probably one of the most adept at transferring her power into um, a, a corporate entity, if you will. So I guess... From that, um, how does that translate into how powerful women are perceived in our society? Because I think a lot of the tales that were told or the narrative that were told about why we should have women in power is because of our inherently feminine traits. You know, we're g giving, we're caring, we compromise, you know, but this flips the script. And, and how they flip the script is that there's a character that says, well, you know, it's natural that women would have all the power because they are um, they are the caretakers for bringing the children into the world and they would be the most fierce. Hmm. And it's fascinating to think about this entering the culture at the time of Larry Nassar's conviction. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that seems profound about that is there were 150 women who testified against him. And if you look at the studies about who comes forward and who doesn't, that means there were thousands of people victimized. And yet they were in a system where they were not heard. Like, even though the U Michigan State University had 14 separate occasions um, where people filed complaints and they were beaten back. And so, it's interesting that we live in a culture where it is so difficult to say the difficult thing in the female voice, and we have this narrative where the power turns. It contrasts beautifully to Mary Beard's book. She's a classicist at um, Cambridge and um, a remarkable scholar of antiquity, and she would answer Julia's question by saying, Western civilization was set up where we literally defined from Roman and Greek antiquity the public space as male space, and the public voice, the vox populi, as a masculine voice, and that we live to this moment with these tensions and conflicts about actually being able to hear dismissing the higher register. And she's funny, and she's um, collected two lectures, so you can read this in one sitting, one she gave in 2014 and one she gave last year. And she illustrates it with um, 
Elizabeth Warren being told to sit down and Hillary Clinton being made into the Medusa, entering the domestic space on t-shirts and handbags as a monster. I mean, that was part of the cultural signifying. But um, my, maybe my favorite moment in this very droll and gorgeous little book is this cartoon I was unaware of from about 30 years ago called the Mrs. Tiggs cartoon. It's a single panel. And in it, there's just a boardroom. Um, can you read the? <laughs> My eyes aren't so good. Yeah, we, we're going to switch to a male voice, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> it is a guy. <laughs> um, that's an excellent suggestion, Miss, Miss Triggs. Perhaps one of the men would like to make it. So they're in a corporate bold, go, um, boardroom. And in England, it's called your Mrs. Triggs moment, where you can't be heard. How old is that comic? It's about 30 years old. Ah, mm -hmm. seems pretty relevant. I'm sure all the ladies in the room can attest. <laughs> well, and that was the other uh, issue dancing around is, of course, the power is, you know, fantasy land that um, women don't have the power and that, and this is an explicitly, I think the power primarily is focused on individual relationships. I mean, there's there's an issue about the politician, but um, you know, just be women kind of go immediately toward the more abuse of physical power because they can. And it wasn't really. I think um, you almost wanted to do it 20 years later in the power to see. Okay, where did this all kind of so I disagree out. with you there, Cal. I don't think it's as much about interpersonal as is about civilization shifting. Mm. And as it gathers momentum, more and more things are crumbling. And, and I think that's really an interesting tension even between our reading because yeah. we tend to think about love and power as domestic. And oh. she is being very explicitly non-domestic here. Oh, well, that's true. I absolutely agree with that. that they're but not, you know... They're not um, making um, TV dinners with their extra static power. So, <laughs> but um, their power comes from their, their domesticity, body. right? Because they have the power to bear children, right? Well, their power comes from this now physical ability to hurt people. Oh, and right. then by to an be physically powerful yeah. and be dominant. Okay. And dominant, so yes. That echoes through the spiritual, the mm -hmm. um, political and the criminal, and everybody suffers. And everybody suffers. And I was going to mention, just to jump to um, Mary Beard's book, The Power is really great. And it, uh, she's a classicist, so she goes back through the, um, the Greek gods and the, the, the mythological stories, and as well as the creation of Greek civilization and literally the creation of public discourse that you know we use today, you know, in our courts and in our politics because they're modeled on um, Greek civilization. There was a very explicit decision made that women were not part of that public space and could not speak. And she does this brilliant job of saying. Um, here, let me show you all these examples uh, from antiquity, and guess what? We're still doing the same thing. And the, I, I also looked up the Elizabeth Sanders being censored uh, in Senate um, for uh, 
and, and what she was doing actually was reading a letter written by Coretta Scott King um, and in which it talked about fairness and equality and it was during the hearings f um, to consider uh, Jeff Sessions to be appointed Attorney General and the Senate rules silenced her and that was exactly what's examined in Mary Beard's book that um, no public uh, public space, it could not be a public space if a woman spoke and if so she was punished and her male yeah. counterpart or husband or fellow would be censored as well. So it seems that we haven't seen really much change based <laughs> off of these books, but it seems like um, in the comic world, it, they've gone through these kind of cycles where women were writing the comics, there were more women in comics, and then that disappeared and that's coming back. How is, you know, why, why is that so, and why is it not happening in um, maybe literature, or is it happening again in literature? So I think Karen and Kel can speak to this too, but I think like what happens in what I know, I mean, my understanding of the history of literature is that women have also always wrote. I mean, we know this, we have manuscripts in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, and yet um, I will say this, and people will say, no, 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 women never wrote. Women didn't write until, like, you know, Jane Austen. <laughs> and I, 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 I was, I to run book clubs at the Cleveland Public Library, and there was a member of a book club that really dug in her heels, and she said, no, women didn't write. Virginia Woolf said women didn't write. And there is this active erasure, and then some type of, I don't know how to describe it articulately, but some type of excitement. Oh, look what we found. Or all of a sudden, oh, look, women are writing now. Like, there's you, you erase it, and then you're like, oh, now women are writing. Like, right. that's what happens in comics. Like, women are finally in comics. Well, they've always been there. Why all of a sudden are we getting excited now? And why are we acting as if this is new? But that's part of the process is let's have the women there, let's erase them, let's bring them back, get excited, forget about it for a while, get excited again. It's this cycle. But I also think it's about who is authoritative, mm -hmm. who's worth recording, who's worth hearing interpersonally, intergenerationally, centuries speaking to centuries. You know, the voice that has gravitas in our lives is something that literature asks us to interrogate, good literature asks mm -hmm. us to interrogate. And one of the reasons it's worth your time is because it brings in voices that aren't normally maybe in your discourse mm -hmm. or your grasp. Well, and y you know, whatever you, whatever you read, I think that's really the plug here is, um, it's a voice, and whether you agree with it or not, it challenges you and makes you think. And um, you know, one of the reasons I found Mary Beard's book so fascinating, um, and um, and I also I'm not feeling terribly optimistic about the Me Too movement because I think our at least in our country, if popular movements are not backed up with legislation which becomes law, which becomes our standard understanding of what is allowed or what's not allowed in our civilization, or our country, our civilization, um, it's really a wash. And, um, you know, I think we've seen this very immediately with um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, granted, there have been some other national, international issues that have taken the forefront, but 
you know, the NBA owners blacklisted Colin Kaepernick, and so, you know, arguably the biggest voice for Black Lives Matter, uh, who was able to make that cross from um, this advocate, you know, people who love sports to, um, you know, daily life, they took him out, you know, he's off the, he's out of the public dialogue now um, because the elements in power took him off, you know, yeah. out of the di dialogue. And I think with the Me Too movement, um, especially with women in Hollywood, uh, if that's not backed up by legislation and law, I think it once again kind of becomes this, you know, movement that could have happened. So, um, just we're gonna start asking questions from the audience. So, if you have a question, um, I invite you to come and stand um, at our mic here. Um, you know, ask any question. All questions are welcome. Um, but Karen, if you wanted to finish us up here, I was or. just gonna <laughs> say the complexity enters even as we bring Black Lives Matter in because that movement was started by three women. And yet mm -hmm. the yeah. Colin Kaepernick is the signifier that right. you go to. So That's right. And yeah, who, the, for those who don't know, uh, Black Lives Matter was started uh, by three wonderfully heroic women uh, as a result of the killings of young African-American. In, in particular. Right. All right. That's, um, thank you. Thank you. So we'll take <laughs> our first question. Hello. Hey. Uh, so I have a question about the expectation of exceptionalism from women, both in literature and daily life. Um, I was reminded that when you talked about Larry Nasser, and I read a really interesting perspective that this very mediocre, replaceable doctor was protected at the expense of literally gold medal, Olympic winning, unique across the world women. And you talked about how in the power, you know, these women are shown, like women are shown to be just as bad as men, right? Or women characters like Jessica Jones is allowed to be like complicated and flawed. And I was wondering what you think the counterpart to that is, both in literature and in life. Like, when do we expect men to step up and be better, as opposed to just showing that women can have oh. flaws, too? <laughs> we'll have a little wrestling match after uh, our dialogue. You know, that's a really good point because, and, and Karen and I struggle with this because we read all the time. Um, and, and where do you go with those fabulous voices that are exceptional, and they bring us to a higher plane, um, but sometimes that, you know, we like the superstars, and sometimes I think that reading that range and allowing all of those voices to, to exist and, and, you know, giving time to them, I think really, you know, it, it makes a difference in your own life and not just in literature, but it, you're exactly right. And how many women have to come forward before an issue is brought up about a single individual? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're exactly right on that. And um, have we seen any? like literature in, or stories where um, the men are able to step up without stepping on w women? Does that make sense? So I, I think when, when Katie asked her question, um, it reminded me of, you know, we, we ask men to step up, but um, 
we don't want them to step on the movement or step on our ability to speak. Um, so is that ever the case in um, comics? Like, is there, a, is there a male sidekick to a, a female superhero? Uh, um, <laughs> no. No male so, sidekick, but a leader. So I'll stay. I'll stay within the the books that like we're, the stuff we're talking about. Since we're talking about Jessica mm -hmm. Jones, um, so her um, lover, I guess I don't know what else to call him. I mean, he, in the comics, he event they eventually get married, but in the TV show, at spoiler least. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Sorry. <laughs> well, yeah. Sorry. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Um, so in the TV show, he does take a back he does take a back seat to her. Um, he I don't I don't know if we want to say sidekick that that idea of sidekick it almost um, I don't know I mean it's it's a it's a it's it's so male I guess and yeah. so they changed that whole narrative mm -hmm. of so he's a, he's a he's a supporter he 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 helps her he supports her. Um, he's not underneath her, mm -hmm. but he just takes a bat. Or and not even being trained by her, but just like when she needs when she needs something from him, she a she asks him for it. Yeah. He's not just like you know always there helping her. He's, she she does every she does a lot of things by herself. So it gets. I I don't know, but uh, maybe. Um, but Chris Pine is a good example. Yes, Chris Pine and Wonder Woman is a good is a very good example. Yeah. Well, he, he, does he make sidekick? I think he's okay. Well, he's below sidekick. <laughs> <laughs> she call she. I think I kind of like that. That she just like like Luke Cage. They just kind of call on them like when they're needed. <laughs> it's not even sidekick. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So Julia, that's such an interesting question because we're in a literary moment that's much more about dystopia than utopia. When was the last time you read a utopia? I mean, who would even? sort of dare go there right now. And I, I feel that hunger too because dystopia isn't the full picture. And sometimes when people are asking me for something to read that's beautiful and modern and has and love happy, in happy, it. Happy, happy. Um, I recommend a great book with a terrible title called The Light of the World by Elizabeth Alexander, which is about her marriage. Mm -hmm. And maybe because it's written by a woman, I'm more receptive. But um, you fall in love with her husband. I did as I was reading it. And it actually made me want to be a better spouse. And there's not a lot out there that I think evokes that. But that, you know, the better angels aren't as sexy, maybe, and so, you know, lots of stories are animated by darkness, but I think that is, you get stuck in your goth period, you're not living the completely. Well, and the other tag, I guess, um, that is floating around here is that um, we want new stories, and we want stories for things that we haven't quite thought out yet. And, um, and I think a great example of this, speaking of pulling up Netflix, is um, the range of stories that have been made available um, through these um, other providers of Netflix and Hulu and Amazon. Um, I actually, I'm um, one of a series that I really have gotten to love because it talks about um, older characters is um, Gr Grace and Frankie, Frankie and Grace. Yeah. 
Yeah. And which is Lily, Tom I mean, it's an all-star cast. It's Lily Tomlin, um, Jane Fonda, um, Martin Sheen, and Sam Watterson. Um, all, and it's this fabulous story. And uh, it's about people in their 70s. And the two husbands uh, divorced their wives, Frankie and Grace, and, are, and got married. And how their adult children interact. And, and how they're all living their lives. And I think that's... Uh, uh, and we see that too in Jennifer Jones. I mean, um, you know, this plethora of dial of stories, whether that's in visual context or literature, that are expanding. You know, hey, that's more interesting. That's more fun. And I think because of that, that will continue. And um, I think we're in a very kind of troubled you know, popular world right now, or world right now, and so we get a lot of dystopian mm -hmm. fiction, we get a lot of heartbreak, yeah. um, but that won't always be the case. Yeah. So we're talking about a lot of great books here, but when you look at a lot of the, like, bestseller list, you kind of get women characters, like in Fifty Shades of Grey, where they're like <laughs> the sex object, or the woman who's going out of her comfort zone for a man, or you get like Gone Girl, where the woman is crazy. I mean, those are the books that typically make bestseller lists that people pass around and talk about. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the books that you're talking about. So I have sort of a two-part question. One is, do you think as society changes, we'll see less of those characters? Or is there something about women in those roles that we can't seem to escape from, that people still are captivated by, as opposed to a woman in like the power, where she has a physical power, you know, instead of just being either the sex object or the crazy one, because right. that sort of infuriates me. But that seems mm -hmm. to be what people yeah. want to buy. Well, and publishers publish what people want to buy. I mean, I think that's, you know, you s often you need a breakout book um, to depict, and homicidal women uh, sell, right? <laughs> I mean, we're all like, oh, homicidal woman, homicidal man, you know, there's all those, s you know, anyway, I'll go on. Stephanie, I <laughs> love that question, though, because I, the books always read us, and so it's always interesting what is capturing the gestalt out there. And, you know, one out of three books that are purchased that people are putting their money down for are romances. Mm. So that's, you know, nothing I read deeply in. There's my prejudice right out there, but <laughs> I think I'm missing something just thinking about our culture by not paying attention to um, to the way these are women readers um, navigate their lives and their fantasy lives through the romance novel. And we were thinking about talking a little bit about Marguerite Daras's The Lover. We're gonna, um, one last book that we uh, wanted to touch base on is a, a fabulous classic, which uh, some of you may have read, um, Marguerite Duras, right? Duras, yeah. Marguerite Duras, sorry, I'm doing my Cleveland accent, where everything's Duras, but Marguerite <laughs> Duras um, wrote this fabulous book uh, called The Lover, and it came out in... Um, 74. In 74? Mm -hmm. 74, and she was in her uh, 60s when she wrote it, and uh, she... It tells a, sto a fictionalized version of... Uh, the relationship she had as a 15-year-old girl in then Indochina uh, with um, a Vietnamese man. And uh, it 
delves into, you know, this very intense sexual emotional relationship, but it never, um, and, and her great ability uh, that the book is written both in the first person and then it jumps to the third person, so there's this distance that comes in. Um, but one of the reasons this is a new, um, this is, as some of you all may know this series, um, the Everyman series, the Everyman series, and this book includes both the story uh, entitled The Lover, as well as her memoirs, a uh, part of her memoirs, and in the memoirs, she depicts a very different, um, uh, a di very different situation of, of how this relationship came about, um, her family was terribly, terribly poor, and um, her mother encouraged this relationship because it would help, uh, it helped take her off the financial needs of um, her mother was supporting other children, and uh, it provided political access uh, and standing uh, to survive um, the colonial world. So uh, the mix of that, um, but not to distract from a great artist being able to take, you know, a terrible, terrible uh, chapter in one's life and create it and, and make it into art. Uh, but it doesn't I, read oh. as terrible. Who's read right. that one? <laughs> it doesn't read that terrible. Has right. that, that one is just tattooed on a lot of people because it's transgressive because the 15-year-old girl has agency, which, mm -hmm. as you yeah. were talking about, that doesn't happen a lot. She has agency with her 27-year-old Asian lover. There's a racial element, obviously. Mm -hmm. There's class element, and there's money. Her mother is basically pimping her out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so I think what's interesting about that, to set more context, is I remember passages where um, the lover is professing his love for her, and she doesn't feel that. And in that, I sensed that's where the power was. Like she held the power in this relationship because she didn't reciprocate that feeling. And that flips the script on, you know, on these relationships. And also in terms of colonialism, which is a huge thing and we're not gonna get into, but the fact that when, you know, European countries would come into, a you know, we'll talk about Asian countries specifically here, you know, they would take on young Asian women lovers. And this is the total opposite. Um, so I think that there's a lot of really powerful power dynamics in that novel, not to hijack the conversation, no. but that yes. that revolve around yeah race and age. Um, is there and you know class. and class? Um, is there anything? Is there anything? Sorry, I just wanted to check on the time, but is there anything in today's um, romance that accesses those same themes? Well, to tell a good love story, you have to have something between the lovers. Mm -hmm. And it's actually becoming a uh, logistical, a mechanical problem because as we do collapse some of the boundaries um, of class and race, mm -hmm. there's less between the, the people who are um, lusting for each other. I think it's one reason we got Twilight. I mean, vampire is crossing a boundary <laughs> that um, puts a little frisson and forbiddenness into the mix mm -hmm. so um, but you know all of us are looking for connections so it's a very ancient way to think about the other and the self mm -hmm. and the connection 
So we're also, we're chatting, but if you have a question, I do invite you to come up if you want. I know it can be hard to one, cut into our conversation, but. One, um, I know I mentioned Monstrous only briefly by name, but I, I think it's a fascinating book, and I, as you brought up um, history of colonialism, especially mm -hmm. in, um, the, in the Eastern world, um, Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda do, um, they created Monstrous together, and it ima it's a steampunk narrative in an imagined um, East Asian, Southeast Asian country, East Asian country, um, and it's, but it, the driving force is love, and this is fascinating also with Wonder Woman, we brought her up before, the driving force is love, but it's love for a mother and desire for a mother. She she has lost her mother. That's not a spoiler. That's she's dead <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> okay, but there is a there is a desire to reclaim, and there's a and there's a, the desire is for the mother. The love is for the mother. As just as Wonder Woman's power comes from her mother, and I, and some of these comics, which is interesting, is that we're talking about love, and I think love for a mother, and and the love for a mother, and love of a mother as a driving force, as a as a force of desire but also as one that propels these characters forward is in a lot of these comics, especially Wonder Woman. Um, it's also in a series by, called Miss Marvel by a, by a great writer called G. Willow Wilson. Um, it's in Sana Takeda's work. But this, uh, this identification with the mother um, and then also just power merging from that, that, that love. I mean, one, this is what Wonder Woman is about. She's all about love for a mother. Wonder Woman is born of love. She's born of her mother's love, and that's where her great power comes from. And that is, that's in comics still. It got suppressed, but a lot of these writers are going back to that idea, mm. and I think it's one of, the, one of the most amazing, because you can't have love that's not sexual, and that's, yeah. a, that's a huge part of our lives. Yeah. I mean, we're all here because we had love of some mother, or like a, a, a mother in quotes, like some type of parental figure. I'm not gonna lie, but um, I was seeing these two books right here, and um, they were online, and Monstrous and Jessica Jones, but I'm starting <coughs> because of, you know, me getting back into education, and I went back to, you know, reading comics and stuff like that to comprehend mm -hmm. and, and, and speed read and stuff like that. Um, I read four books, five. James Patterson, Alex Cross, Cross the Line, um, Ready Player One, um, The Martian, and I have Artemis. Sometimes, you know, I don't want to go on ahead and read that, you know, the second versions because it's never as good as the first ones. So I kind of put push that aside. But, you know, I'm different, so I'm... You know, I'm taking a look at the swans of Fifth Avenue because, you know, the date back. But I'm tired reading, you know, books that have titles of girl instead of women. And there's a book that's out that is the woman, the woman in the window. And but it's written by a man. Mm -hmm. Is there any way that you guys could just, you know, you know, like, you know, instead of having this, putting these, the title girl in a lot of titles, you know, just because, you know, it's mainstream and quick sell instead of putting the women, because I feel like that's deep, putting women, you know, the title women. Um, 
is there a lot in that plan in your guys, you know, in your well, we don't get things. to entitle and anything. I love these books. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Thank you. But well, it's I you, found you did a fantastic, yeah. your reading, a plot is fantastic. Sorry, librarian lady, I was with little kids this afternoon, so I go, good reading. Um, <laughs> but no, your reading is fantastic because that's what readers do, and they read lots of different things. So comics, um, you can, you know, you could probably spend two years of your life reading all of the Patterson books, and they're fantastic. They're great reads. They're interesting. Um, but you're also gr you're also exactly right. Um, we tend popular literature tends to plug women in as girls, and um, very kind of one dimensional. A lot of mystery writer. There's some great mystery writers that have lots more developed characters, um, but you're exactly right. A lot of um, detective and mystery stories, police procedurals out there have very kind of one-dimensional characters. But it's a profound question because girls are consumable in a way women aren't. I, I, I just think that when, you know, an author, and it said that that book was made by, I, I mean, no disrespect, but, you know, I would have loved you know, that, you know, a certain author, that woman to write about that mm. and have that title mm -hmm. instead right. of somebody understanding mm -hmm. a certain, you know, humane or humanity and just like, yo, this is what it is. Yeah. I don't, that's deceiving. But, um, just, you know, I would love, like, Sin City, mm -hmm. the movie. Mm -hmm. I would like to see a like a Dick Tracy aspect to that. Or uh, have y'all like I I I'm like big in detective type mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anything like yeah. what yeah. Are you guys like in detective world e even for a woman. Oh, for detective, uh, I think hands down this is just my um, my preference. Walter Mosley is a fantastic. Um, a, a number of years ago, a uh, great uh, one of his one uh, book, uh, "Devil in a Blue Dress," was made into a movie with Denzel Washington. Um, it, I think, it has it's a fabulous description of American life uh, through the decades, and they're great stories, great characters, and lots of really interesting women in the story. So Walter Mosley, uh, and he's got a couple of different. Um, mystery series, uh, but you'd like them. Yeah. Thank you so much, and thank you. Keep reading. This will be our last question. Go ahead. So I kind of want to touch on what you said about romance novels, and one in three are, you know, that women buy romance novels, and we kind of throw them away, but it seems like that's usually the one time where women are able to not only own their sexuality, but embrace it and enjoy it. And in a lot of the mainstream books that are out there, women have to be abused or they have to be gritty and they can't own who they are. And so when are we going to kind of flip the tide of, oh, you're sexually active, that's great. We're going <laughs> to talk about, you know, this superstar who's been going through all this horrible stuff and kind of accept that we are allowed to own our sexuality. And as you pointed out with Grace and Frankie or whatever the combination is, they're, f they're talking about those kinds of things. And... When are we going to go from, it's not just a comedy or a fluff, it's reality and it's who we are. Mm. So can you recommend a romance novel that you think <laughs> the crowd would like? Oh, 
No, because all I read are all the fluffy ones. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think about that. Okay. I'll come up with a list. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I think that about wraps up. Did you have one last question or do you want to ask it real quick? Got to got to run. Got to hustle. <laughs> Thank you. No, I uh, appreciate this panel, and I hope I don't take a long time with my uh, my question. But um, you mentioned The Handmaid's Tale in the beginning, and um, I read the book, and I now watch the the series after it came out last year. And um, I was just very curious in why a book that was written in 1985 uh, that now came out last year had such you know renowned success and is winning awards, and um, I studied uh, international relations and history in, in college. And um, what I was really captured with uh, The Handmaid's Tale was that it was a, uh, you know, a fictional book that kind of took this interpretation of uh, an un, like, alternative reality, the United States government being overthrown by a fundamentally extremist uh, Christian, you could say, organization. Mm -hmm. And I was curious whether or not, you know, now this show being come, being out, having major success, um, just recently Paramount Pictures also released or began their own miniseries as well called Waco, dealing mm -hmm. uh, with the uh, David Korsh uh, organization, uh, the uh, Branch Davidians in Texas. And I was curious if this is, uh, if your opinion on this, if this is kind of a theme right now in, um, both fiction and nonfiction publications and entertainment that we're seeing about the depictions that were uh, kind of the, I guess you could say w with what I studied in school, the correlation between of kind of what we're seeing with these extremist organizations in uh, like the Middle East with ISIS, for example, if this is a adaptation that right now is so popular because it's something that American can society can kind of somewhere draw a correlation as to something, you know, with the Middle East and with extremist mm -hmm. Wahhabism and such like that. Mm -hmm. so, thank you. That's deep too. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. No, it's great. I, I, you make me think of Robert Pinsky, who was the poet laureate for a while, and he was here in Cleveland um, when 9-11 happened, and he said uh, at the Cleveland Public Library, the great poems about 9-11 have been written, and I wasn't sure what he meant the first time he said it, and I asked him about it later, and he really, he really was speaking to when things happen in our world that throw us, we can look to literature for explanations, whether it's theocracies and Handmaid's Tale and whether that impinges on ISIS. And I think for a lot of people chugging along in the Obama era, the election of Donald Trump was a moment where people turned to the plot against America by um, Philip Roth or the Handmaid's Tale to, to sort of start to grab, grapple with what is it that I missed? Mm -hmm. You know, what didn't I see? And Peter Ho Davies, who wrote The Fortunes, um, said um, when the election happened, he said the University of Michigan doesn't go into politics in his classes, but his students were out of their minds, and he wasn't going to be able to work with them. 
And what he said was, um, you don't live in a binary world. The things that elected Donald Trump have always been in your country. And the things that you are aren't erased. You're just seeing it differently. And that was, I thought, a really kind of brilliant way of looking for the story you're missing, but not letting go of the story you want. I think that's a really great note to end on. Um, so I'm going to ask the panelists just to say um, the titles and the authors are the creators of the pieces of work that they talked about today. So you guys all have it on your minds. And we'll publish it on a blog at cityclub.org um, within the next week. So. OK. Um, OK, this uh, is Marguerite Duras. I got it right. Marguerite Duras, The Lover, Wartime Notebooks, Practicalities, and it's the Everyman Library. This one was published uh, 2017. Yep. So um, <laughs> I mentioned Jessica Jones by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Gatos. Also watched the TV show, which is directed by um, Melissa Rosenberg. Um, I also mentioned Monstrous by Sa uh, Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda. Um, I also recommend any Wonder Woman comic, particularly the early ones by um, William Moulton Marston, which he, which had much influence by Elizabeth Holloway Marston, his wife, and many of them were written by Joy Murchison. Um, I think I also mentioned, oh, uh, it's, it's up there, I didn't mention it, but um, Chelsea Kane's Mockingbird, it was the image where there's a woman with blonde hair, she says, um, ask me about my feminist agenda. It's a wonderful <laughs> book. Also, off of The Handmaid's Tale, um, just to insert this in there, there is a wonderful, amazing comic from 1982 that looks at the appropriation of scripture by televangelists and the syndication of hate um, through televangelism. And it's called God Loves, Man Kills. And the villain, who is a televangelist, actually looks like Mike Pence. So <laughs> yeah, he does. He does. I mean, I'm serious. So it's called God Loves, Man Kills. It's a wonderful X. It's an X-Men comic, actually. But it's, it is about that idea of the appropriation of scripture to syndicate hate. And it's a, an amazing comic. And for the record, this panel has no opinion on political issues. <laughs> I'm on fire for The Power by Naomi Alderman, not because of its beautiful sentences, but because of its concepts, especially twinned with The Handmaid's Tale. I also mentioned The Plot Against America, which might be my favorite, Philip Roth. Um, and I think if I was to voice a book on anyone, it would be Women Empowered by Mary Beard. And I forgot to mention that she's funny. And one yeah. of the things that she emphasizes is get out of the outrage Olympics. You know, there is a way to slay with humor. And she's a genius on Twitter at doing that very thing. And so um, the other um, book is Elizabeth Alexander's um, book about her husband, um, the, the, light. the Light of the World. <laughs> I'm resistant. I'm allergic to that title because it sucks, but the book is wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for your kind attention. Well, I love that. Let's keep slaying with humor.
right? <laughs> um, so thank you to everyone for joining us. Thank you to the Happy Dog. Thank you to our panelists. Um, and if you're interested in more book programming, quick plug, uh, go to cityclub.org. We have a lot of authors coming up, including a lot of discussions around um, Evicted by Matthew Desmond, which is the One Community Reads program, a collaboration with the City Club, Playhouse Square, and all of the public libraries in the area. Uh, so thank you so much for coming out, and uh, this forum is adjourned.